You're listening to Learning Capacity with Colin Klupik. This podcast is brought to you by LearnFast, improving student learning outcomes with neuroscience programs since 1999. For more information about individualized language and reading programs for your child, visit learnfasthome.com.au. Mike McKay is a now retired superintendent of the Surrey County Schools District in British Columbia. He was a public educator for 35 years. The area he supervised is said to have over 160 languages spoken. You can imagine it would be extremely difficult, if not nigh on impossible, to measure the potential problems with language and reading development in such a large and diverse region. But back in 2008, he attended a conference hosted by Scientific Learning Corporation, where he was exposed to the research behind the Fast for Word programs. When he came back, he asked his board to trust him and give him $300,000 to get started. It was a bold pitch. In this episode, Mike tells the story of how things have panned out. Mike, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. You're a, a retired superintendent of the Surrey County Schools District of British Columbia, and uh, you you were working for 35 years as a public educator, so it's a, a long time to be working in, the, in that sort of environment. Over that time, 123 schools supervised, uh, over 70,000 students involved. The area you supervise is also said to have over 160 languages spoken. So we're talking about, first of all, a long career, many schools, tens of thousands of students, and also many, many languages. In terms of language and reading difficulties, how does one begin to measure or even get an idea of what the potential problems might be in such a large and diverse region? Yeah, well, thank you. And and uh, it's a great question to start with. And, and I'll just go back a little bit into my history. Uh, so the 123 schools, 70,000 students refer specifically to Surrey School District, which is just outside Vancouver. Uh, Surrey is the largest district in the province. But before I came to Surrey, I worked in a number of other districts as a teacher, a principal, a superintendent, every, anything from a very small district, uh, high school with 120 kids in it as when I started teaching, to elementary school, other high schools with 1,500 kids, and so on. So uh, all of that culminated uh, in 2005 when I came to Surrey uh, as their new superintendent and CEO. And it was a remarkable transitional time for me because I'd come from the greater Victoria area on Vancouver Island, which was relatively homogeneous. Um, uh, there was certainly there was diversity, but nothing like what we see here. And my introduction to Surrey was the 160 languages and the remarkable number of, of uh, stories and the, the range of communities and the life experiences and the educational aspirations and the challenges. I mean, when we talk about uh, the measuring issues across such a wide area in this school district, it's a big challenge. There are well-defined structures in schools for identifying kids who are struggling, uh, for school-based teams to meet, to make recommendations, to look at assessments and so on. But uh, all of that's very time-consuming and it's labor-intensive. So um, we know that with young kids, there can be a breakthrough moment as far as literacy, reading, uh, cognition, uh, making meaning of, of the content they are starting to be exposed to. Uh, but we also know that by age six or seven, we're expecting to see 
uh, for most kids, uh, the penny drops and they get it and they start to not just learn to read, but read to learn. And that progresses all the way through for the kids, for the kids who have big struggles. Uh, yes, there are, uh, there are classroom interventions. There are teachers and teacher education assistants who can make some observations and there are parents coming in and saying, I'm concerned about my child. So it's it's always been a matter of, of uh, prioritizing, but it's also been a matter of recognizing that we have far more demands and far more needs than we have um, resources to give individual attention to kids, especially labor-intensive. Out of the 160 languages, uh, which ones are... Uh are dominant. I mean, they couldn't all be equally distributed over the uh, over the population. No. Our our biggest uh, ethnic populations in this school district are uh, South Asian people uh, with a, a background and a connection to India or Pakistan. Uh, we are seeing larger numbers of Iraqi uh, immigrants. Uh, we're getting uh, significant numbers of Syrian refugees. We have a relatively large Chinese population and a Korean population and many, many, many more. Uh, lots of uh, people from the Sudan. Um, it's, 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 the world is our, our you know, village. And primarily, I guess presumably they're, they're all trying to get on with daily life by trying to interact with a predominantly English environment. What we find is... For many of the kids, uh, the uptake is really quick. Um, part of the challenge sometimes, though, is that the, the children will be in an English environment called school for five hours. For the rest of their time, they are uh, in uh, an environment that is um, fully in their home language. So their grandparents and parents speak their native language, they, their doctor, the shops they go to, and so on. Uh, so uh, the, the uptake is quick, but sometimes, depending on the circumstances, there's a bit of a lag because of the limited amount of time uh, where there's exposure to English. So does that uh, smaller amount of time in the in the English spoken environment, does that then lead to delays in being able to pick up uh, language and reading development delays? It can. Um, and I, you know, I don't want to overgeneralize. Uh, for some kids, especially if it's a compound number of variables, the challenge is going to be greater. If they come into school with uh, early language exposure deficiencies, where they've been in an environment where they haven't heard the spoken word very much, uh, that's going to add to the issue. If they come with uh, undiagnosed early uh, inner or middle ear infections so that their their capacity to hear and to differentiate between sounds, that's going to make a difference. And there are a number of things that can stack up one on top of the other to provide uh, some of these kids with a, a tremendously steep curve in order to engage and catch up and, and assimilate into uh, the effective use of the language and and making meaning. So, how well is the the district actually equipped at the moment with access to speech language pathology services? I mean, is is it a case where the, the the numbers of students presenting with problems is increasing, or are we just becoming more aware of it now? Is it just easier to diagnose? Uh, I'm just trying to find out exactly where we think the source of the problem might be. 
Well, I think it's both. Uh, there, there is a more uh, more attention to diagnosis earlier. We've got better tools for diagnosis, uh, functional MRIs, uh, audiological equipment, uh, higher sensitivity. We now recognize the, the great breakthrough, and I say that with air quotes around it, is that we, we realized what we should have realized a long time ago, which was that all kids can learn. And the question is, if they're not learning, what are the barriers? It's not a matter of the child not having the capacity in almost all cases. It's it's a matter of barriers that we should be able to identify and remediate. So, the, yes, there's uh, higher, uh, uh, f- a greater focus on uh, diagnosis, better tools. There's also an increasing number of kids who are uh, dealing with uh, all kinds of, of, of issues that are that are compromising their ability to process. I do a lot of work in self-regulation, and uh, we may talk about that at another time on another podcast. But uh, what we know is that the uh, number of stressors um, are, that are visiting themselves upon children, even at a very young age, can really compromise their uh, capacity to be calm and focused and alert and to absorb the learning environment around them. If there are stressors coming from outside the school environment and then perhaps some uh, problems, I guess, within the school environment, like perhaps the curriculum or perhaps the, the, the environment that they're in, the, the school uh, culture, then you've got this compounding effect, which yes. would, would have a dramatic effect on a student's uh, development. It, it can, and we say this with deep respect for all of the remarkable work that's being done in schools. Uh, and the miraculous stories that we hear on a regular basis. We also know that parents, uh, to the greatest extent, are doing the best job they can. Uh, So it's not a matter of cavalier uh, disregard for children and their future. But there are more issues today, and we know that the the uh, the issue of marginalizing kids who are struggling and sending them off into a lower level of education and lower outcomes and then into a labor market where they're not equipped to cope. That isn't, that isn't appropriate. Never was, but now we know that there are rights, human rights that a child has, and we have to uh, attend to those. I think the other issue is the speech and language pathologists, and I don't know what the number is. I retired a couple of years ago, and a lot of those numbers have disappeared from my brain, but um, there aren't enough. I mean, there are people who will tell you that they're on waiting lists for speech and language pathologists, uh, 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 testing and diagnosis and remediation for months and months and months. And in some cases, they turn to the private sector. In some cases, uh, it's a developmental issue that remediates. In some cases, there are teachers without the SLP training doing uh, a heroic job uh, to support the kids. But there aren't enough uh, speech and language paths. And the speech and language paths uh, who are working in the system, in some cases, are embracing some new technologies, uh, and in some cases, aren't. Uh, and the, I mean, part of uh, the work I've been doing recently is around the use of fast forward as a resource. And we see that there are some speech and language pathologists who embrace that as one of the tools in the toolbox and others who say, no, this has got to be a face-to-face, one-on-one interactive uh, engagement between me and the client or the child. 
And uh, the numbers just won't uh, sustain that. We, we know that the lineup is far longer than the number of qualified people. A simple case of supply and demand. The demand is there, but we just can't, just can't provide the services quickly enough. Mm-hmm. Let's come then specifically to your uh, experience then with Fast for Word. In the district, it was first implemented in uh, 1997, if I understand that to be correct. And yes, then, long before I was here. And then expanded in 2008. Now, mm-hmm. you had something to do with that expansion. Uh, I'm told that you came back from a, a, a conference, a scientific learning conference back in 2008. And then you, you said to the schools board, uh, I need you to trust me and give me $300,000 to expand our neuroscience program. And they did. Um, yeah. Just tell me, what was it like going into that meeting with that pitch in your mind? Well, I was pretty inspired because I'd been at an executive briefing with scientific learning. And uh, in 2008, when I was, when I was there, the, um, the whole issue of our understanding of how the brain works was, was not as fully developed as it is now. Uh, and there were lots of educators and educational leaders who thought that all of that brain stuff should be dealt with by people who specialize in that world. Well, it's now become far more accessible in the work around self-regulation and all kinds of other things. The neurophysiology of who we are is something that we understand so much better. So this was at the early edge of that for me. And I came back from the Fast Forward conference and uh, I was inspired. I'd heard good scientists talk with excitement. I heard other school district leaders talk about the results. So I came into that meeting and I'd been in the school district as superintendent for two and a half or three years. And I came in to a meeting that was uh, about a number of issues. And I said, you know, folks, I just have to tell you uh, this. I, I know that there are, there's a small little uh, application of this resource in the district. I didn't even know about it. It was happening uh, in a very limited way. I said, I've heard something that I suspect will change lives of kids as far as their trajectory for the future. So um, here's what is going to be required to uh, get sufficient licenses, uh, put in the equipment, do the training, and identify a a district uh, coordinator to oversee it. And you just uh, trust me, this will work. And uh, they did. Uh, I was grateful for that, and I was never sorry that I'd asked because um, I heard directly. Uh, I got letters from parents. Uh, I heard uh, from my wife, who was a teacher in the school district, and trustees heard, uh, school board trustees heard directly from, from families where there were life-changing um, uh, results because of kids' uh, new abilities to as the synapses connect, connected and they began to uh, change uh, their hopefulness around learning, mm. everything changed. I was talking to someone the other day in another school district who said, yes, they've got lots of research and they've got lots of local cases around growth in, in um, literacy skills and, and reading levels. Uh, but she said, I know when I see a kid who six months ago or three months ago was walking down the hall, head down, not making eye contact. And I go into that school now and I see a kid with confidence bouncing down the hall with a book under his arm. 
that uh, that's pretty good evidence right there. So how long did this take? I'm assuming that when you went into the meeting and said, I need you to trust me, and they did, they didn't just sort of slide $300,000 across the desk and say, off you go. Um, and now you're telling me... <laughs> if, if they had, I might have. <laughs> just, no, I've just got it, this image of a brown envelope sliding across the table saying, here, you're ready. That, <laughs> off yeah, you go. That, that never um, goes for anyone, the, the brown envelope. Yeah, <laughs> yeah uh, that's right. What happened is... Um, that was authority to put the infrastructure in place, to talk to scientific learning about the licenses, to bring up the trainers, to identify the school sites where the fast-forward stations would be assigned, uh, to identify the district uh, person who would be coordinating the -the on-the-ground support. Uh, So that that unrolled over a few months. You're listening to Learning Capacity with Colin Klupik, brought to you by LearnFast. You can subscribe to this free podcast on your Apple or Android device. Visit soundcloud.com slash learnfast. Get the app, download the podcasts, get updates on the latest discussions about building learning capacity. Now, there's a comment that Scientific Learning makes about their program, and they state this. The Fast Forward program uses the principles of neuroplasticity, that is, the ability of the brain to rewire and improve, to treat the underlying cause of language and reading difficulties once and for all. Now, that's a bold claim. And just a moment ago, you were telling the story of a, or just very briefly, the story of a, of a student walking down the hall who used to have their head down, but now bouncing down the hallway with a book under their arm, obviously feeling much better about themselves and much more capable. That's one way of recording the results or seeing the results. How else is it measured and how else do you see it in in real life? Confidence begets confidence. Success begets success and failure begets failure. So uh, we know that from our own lived experiences. We also know, going back to the brain plasticity, that we have a whole new understanding of of how the brain works. It used to be a certainty when I was going through school and college and all of that, that the brain was set and fixed and all that happened in the brain after a certain age, and it was, you know, late teenagers or early 20s, was uh, brain cells would die. So you kind of reach the pinnacle and then... Uh, it was all downhill from there. Well, that's not true. That's that's an inaccurate depiction. Uh, we know that, um, and I, I want to reference a couple of books which are uh, just the most inspiring pieces of, of work and a nice combination of stories and science. They're both by Norman Doidge, D-O-I-D-G-E. Uh, he's a Canadian a neuroscientist, and he's written two books. One is called The Brain That Changes Itself, and the other is The Brain's Way of Healing. So we've seen kids who go through the protocol, the fast-forward protocol, uh, and it's it's not, by the way, it's not a reading program, in quotation marks, and it's not a cure-all, and it's not the perfect thing for every child. But we see for large numbers of children, if the protocol is appropriately used, that they have tremendous gains, and we see gains of, uh, and these are kids typically, the first ones in the door to to be um, 
to access fast forward are the kids who are significantly behind. They're very much delayed as far as their literacy levels. And of course, the gap just gets wider if nothing happens. Everyone else is galloping ahead at a year's growth for a year's time or more. And these kids, if they're at a 0.2 of a year uh, for a calendar year, it's just getting worse and worse. And what we've seen uh, and there are lots of studies from scientific learning, and there are lots of local studies. What we've seen is that kids uh, who were struggling to make any gains uh, are often achieving gains of, you know, one year or more than one year uh, during the time, uh, as a result of the time they use the protocol. Uh, yes, there are always, <laughs> excuse me, there are always more things that can be done. Uh, it, this doesn't happen in isolation. Uh, it happens as one of the tools and a major tool in the toolbox. There's also, you know, adjustments in, in instructional strategies. There's classroom. Uh, the, there's the attitude around learning that changes. There's uh, the, uh, the opening up of the wonderful world of, of reading uh, and the encouragement of kids, uh, for kids to read for pleasure and all of those things. So we see big benefits for lots of kids. And I mentioned my wife who taught at one of the learning centers, which is for high school kids who have not been successful in the regular high school system, secondary school system. Uh, and there was a fast forward station at her school and she was seeing kids who, who diligently engaged with the protocol under appropriate supervision, using the proper headphones and all of that going from not reading, not really being able to, to read uh, for comprehension at all, to a few months later walking into the school with um, the, uh, a book from the Twilight series, uh, you know, a teen series that wouldn't even have been accessible to that kid earlier. So we, we see the anecdotal evidence, we see the attitudinal, we also see the growth in reading based on, on test scores and standardized uh, reading tests. Yeah, that's um, that's relates to other claims that I've heard about Fast Forward in that it helps to improve engagement and achievement just generally. And uh, are we talking about behavior there, as in just a person's general way of interacting with other people? If you are faced on a daily basis with a failure, inability to learn, uh, watching everyone gallop ahead while you're struggling to keep up. Uh, one of the strategies you can use is to disengage, uh, either passively or actively. So we see when kids are given hope and structure and where the, where the basic fast-forward science, as you know, is to... Uh, find out where kids are in their cognitive processing, their ability to uh, hear and to see, and the speed at which they hear and see and are able to respond. Find out where they are and use that as a baseline and build from there. So building up from a level of competence and capacity, and then over time increasing the speed, decreasing the delay time, so that they are, uh, that neuroplasticity takes hold. The, the um, synapses uh, are, you know, they're, they're, the brain is wiring differently and mm. more, more strongly. And, and a, a, a well-wired brain uh, is a brain that is going to be more nimble 
in being able to, uh, you know, uh, complete tasks, uh, process information, make meaning. I'd like to talk a little bit about your vision, uh, your philosophy on education with particular respect to this issue of language and reading, literacy in general. I'm told that your vision as superintendent was uh, every child, every chance, every day. Now, why is this unique? Wouldn't anybody want that? Sure. It is uh, something that we should all want. And sometimes uh, what we need to do in a, in a brief uh, statement uh, is have a very visible, tangible reminder of that. Because during a school day, a school year, a teacher's day and year, uh, we can lose sight of that sometimes. So it's, it's a belief in kids' capacity to learn. Uh, it's, it's not mine originally. I stole it, and I always give credit when I am asked about it because I was at a, a round table, an educational round table at Oxford University in England, and uh, a principal from a small school in Oklahoma was talking about this being her slogan, if you will. Hmm. And uh, she made a little presentation on it, and I said to myself, "That's that's coming home." And when I that, this was a summer conference I was at, and when we opened the school year in September, and I had two hundred and fifty administrators in the room uh, for the opening. Uh, admin meeting in late August uh, before the September school start, I landed on this and I said, I need to tell you, and I credited the principal from Oklahoma, that this speaks so powerfully to me about the relentlessness that we have to have and the belief we have to have in kids. And what was interesting for me is going around uh, to those 120 schools uh, and, and just dropping in lots of times to schools. And I started to see the phrase, every child, every chance, every day, all over the place. Oh, that's terrific. And, and they weren't putting it up because I was coming. In some cases, it was uh, written on the uh, blackboard that was rolled out uh, into the entryway of the school every day as parents and young kids came in with announcements on it and... and uh, affirmations and aspirations and so on and and every child every chance every day just became part of who we were and uh part of who we are together i like that strategy of the board being rolled out it's a very visible tangible reminder that yes we actually really believe this so at a conference recently you stated your guiding truths um two of those i'll just talk about now one is that results matter and the second one that you need to count what counts now Again, I don't think anyone would disagree with the fact that results matter. In fact, in the current educational climate, I would say that it's almost completely dominated by results through uh, end, of, end of school tests or standardized testing or whatever measure you want to use. My question is, what counts? What, what actually counts? And, and then once we've figured out what counts, how do we actually count it? Well, that's a million-dollar question because what's easy to count often shouldn't count, or is misleading, or simply uh, affirms incorrect assumptions. So we have to be really careful uh, that when we're engaging in assessment and monitoring of progress, we use uh, professional judgment, we use uh, valid uh, assessment tools, uh, and we we start to unpack and, and, and uh, unshackle ourselves from some of those 
easy to measure and easy to um, to administer assessments that really didn't tell us much at all. Uh, they get politicized. They get used as a whipping stick uh, for schools and for systems and for, in some cases, neighborhoods or individual teachers even. So it's it's about counting what counts and identifying and having the deep uh, the, the deep connection with uh, our, our identification of, of our purpose and how we are going to agree that we will assess our achievement of that purpose. I, I'm working, uh, quickly give you an example. I'm working with uh, a school district in BC, a small school district, um, as they uh, reorganize and create a, a renewed vision and I said you know there let's talk about three phases there's uh, the first phase and this is me up at a whiteboard with a felt pen uh, drawing bad rectangles and terrible handwriting but I say the first phase is your current realities and let's gather all of those that have any relevance uh, and let's not argue about them because your realities are re your realities if you've got a, a 50% uh, Aboriginal graduation rate, um, that's a reality. Uh, you need to put it up there as the current truth. The second, uh, and, and there are lots of other inside the learning dynamic, inside teacher wellness and uh, uh, teacher uh, engagement and all kinds of things. Inside the second uh, rectangle is the... Um, expected future or the anticipated future. And the anticipated future is going to be likely based on the trends that have already been established. Not one data point, but if I say to you two, four, six, eight, ten, you're going to make a pretty good guess that the next number might be 12. So we can look at our current realities and we can anticipate what the future will be if we don't change anything. But it's the third box, uh, the third rectangle that is the powerful one, and that is the preferred future. And we identify what counts. We identify our vision and we connect with our vision around kids and learning. And that vision is informed by that first box, which is the current realities. And then the question is, what do we do to intervene? How are we going to monitor and adjust so that we, if we believe we're going to make a difference in a particular way, we actually follow through and see that we are making a difference in that way. So um, that's a count what counts piece. Uh, part of it is, as I said, uncoupling or unshackling ourselves from some old, easy uh, and misleading sources of information. And some uh, of counting what counts means uh, let's listen to the voices, let's look at the evidence, and let's confirm that it's evidence that should cause us to either sustain a great practice or to adjust a practice that isn't delivering as it should or to abandon a practice that's stale and has no, uh, no future. So 35 years in your position, uh, using a combination of, of your vision and, and, of course, the vision that, that you uh, attributed to that other principle that you were talking about, uh, yeah. Fast Forward has been uh, a massive part of that. Uh, the emerging awareness of neuroscience and the neuroplasticity of the brain has been a part of that. 
looking back now, do you still see echoes of that reverberating into into the future? Oh yes, I do. I think that our understanding. I mean, I, I I was an educator, I was a teacher, and a principal, and all of those jobs through the system over that thirty five years. I wish that I knew then what I know now. And I recognize that what I know now is just a sliver of what will be regularly and commonly known going into the future. Um, you know, if we go into the medical field and talk about the uh, challenges that individuals have faced and some of the um, diagnoses that have been essentially a death sentence, and look at what medicine's done over the years to change, uh, to save lives, to extend lives, and to increase the quality of life. Well, we're, we have every capacity to do the same thing in education. As we get to a place where uh, it's not uh, either abstract science or so technical that we can't engage in it, one of the joys of the work in self-regulation is it makes sense one of the joys of the work and seeing the impact of scientific learning and fast forward is it really makes sense. Once you understand what's blocking kids from being able to learn, then and you know there are some ways to remediate that, then you can't not know what you now know. We have to embrace those breakthroughs and use them to the maximum uh, capacity that we have and, and, and to the maximum benefit for the kids. Mike, it's a great story. Thanks so much for your time. You're very welcome. Good to talk to you. You've been listening to Learning Capacity with Colin Klupik, brought to you by LearnFast. If you'd like to know more about LearnFast and the Fast for Word programs, visit learnfasthome.com.au. And if you'd like to comment on this podcast, send us an email to feedback at learnfastgroup.com.au. I'm Colin Klupik. Until next time, bye for now. Thank you.